Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Caribbean, a podcast about the growing economic, social, and political relationship between China and the Caribbean. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Keisha Brown about Sino-Black relations. Dr. Brown is an assistant professor at Tennessee State University. She is a historian and Asian studies scholar whose work examines the representations of blackness in modern China. Dr. Brown is the perfect guest to discuss this topic, so I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dr. Brown. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for having this chat today. Hi, and thank you for inviting me and for having me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time now, because for me, on my very first day in China, this is back in 2016. Uh, literally on the first day, Sino、uh, Black relations almost like you know hit me in the face in some sense, because I was in the Ministry of.、Uh, Commerce in Shanghai, and the the speaker who was given like an opening ceremony presentation, it, it was to a group of、uh, like Caribbean economists and stuff like that, and he said,、uh, "We here in China love the black people, unlike the people in America," and it was it was very surprising to just for someone to say that perhaps in their first minute. Of conversation in like a pretty very very formal speech, and so yeah, from day one, this is like a topic that、uh, I've been I'm thinking about. Wow, we in China like the black people, like the U.S. And it's funny if it chose the U.S. as a model, even though you all were coming from the Caribbean. And it's like, okay, so there's other countries in the world, and why is the U.S. this kind of pivot point? That, that's interesting. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. Oh yeah, that's that's for sure. <laughs> so,、uh, in your work, you you talk a lot about black internationalism and Maoist China, and of course, for a first reading, that's you know、uh, that's kind of strange. So, first of all, I don't really hear that term anymore, black internationalism. So, could you give an overview of what that term is? Then, how did it actually connect to? Communism and anti-imperialism and, and so on, because that's a a very curious connection. Yeah, thank you.、Um, so one book that I turn to and I use to define black internationalism for a lot of different、um, talks and things I use in my own research is the edited anthology by Keisha Blaine and Tiffany Gill entitled "To Turn the Whole World Over: Black Women and Internationalism." And I like this text because it gives a more inclusive because it includes、uh, in its discussion of black internationalism also a gender perspective as well.、Um, so I like their definition. So they say, and I quote. Black internationalism focused on the global visions of Black people in the U.S. and other parts of the African diaspora. It captures their sustained efforts to forge transnational and transracial collaborations and solidarity to the people of color from various parts of the globe. 
It is framed within scholarship as a global political and intellectual and artistic movement of African descended people engaged in a collective struggle to overthrow global white supremacy in its most many forms. So to break that down, basically is looking at people in the diaspora, both African American and other people in the African diaspora, how they're trying to aspire in some ways to go beyond this systems of oppression, including colonialism, including imperialism, that in some ways have relegated them to a less than status. And in these solidarities, they're forming collaborations with other people outside of the diaspora to figure out ways to kind of have a collective struggle. How do we think about engaging with other people who are experiencing related issues, who are some ways experiencing related um, or parallel uh, oppressions, and how can we some ways come together to think about how do we overthrow and challenge and topple white supremacy in its multiple forms, what that looks like in certain places. So black internationalism encompasses a lot, and the means of doing so is not just political. It can be artistic. It can be uh, how you can think about in terms of intellectual. It can be uh, political. It can be through just a lot of different organizations. It can be just putting uh, information out there. And so I think the power of black internationalism is the um, recognition of, one, there are some issues. There's some system oppression that, one, we have our own specific forms of oppression, but, two, these are not unique. There are other ways in which some of these larger systems are translating to other places and people of color. And, two, we can find a multitude of means to try to address uh, name it, tackle it, and, and in some ways, hopefully dismantle those systems. And so when it comes to, to China, specifically as it relates to African-Americans, um, there was a lot of engagement um, early on. I think um, Mark Glacier in his book, um, to, in his discussion of black internationalism from 1895 to 1945, does a good job explaining how when you think about black internationalism and their engagement with Asia, particularly Japan and China, is a very useful space to engage in how we see they're using that as a means to build class collaborations, build networks and communications to address some related issues related to uh, white supremacy, uh, imperialism and colonialism. Um, and so uh, African-Americans early on were very much looking to China. I mean, looking to Japan, excuse me, after the uh, Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. And of course, that changes as we see Japanese history, uh, looking at Japanese history throughout the 20th century, as Japan itself becomes a growing imperial power in the Pacific uh, realm. And so we start to see that many African-Americans are starting to look uh, and see is Japan the, the people we should be in, so as a nation we should be looking towards as its model, or should we shift our gaze and what happens in uh, um, is that Mao kind of very much picks up on this language, this already existing uh, kind of conversation about black internationalism, about global color solidarity, and uses that in conjunction with the kind of changes um, to Japan and what's happening with people's perception of Japan, um, especially during the uh, Pacific War, uh, what we call uh, when we got involved World War II, and how we see this. Uh, yeah. Just to clarify yeah. something a bit, pause you. What exactly were black people in America? curious about Japan or anything in Japan in, in, in this period? Because it was uh, the idea that they, you know, so they, they kind of brought the world up into two kind of blocks. You were either a white nation or a colored nation. And colored nations were anyone who was not white American or white European. And so Japan's defeat of Russia in that war, uh, one thing about the pure sides, people like, you know, Russia's going to win. There's a sure, you know, just sheer sides. And then two, also thinking about, you know, in terms of infrastructure and things that so people were not really sure. And then when Japan won, it was seen as a victory for colored nations all over the world because Japan did something that no one else possibly, quote unquote, could have done in a very unexpected way. And so it became this model of um, there might be something in Japan in terms of their ideology, in terms of their kind of, as they're growing as this kind of modern nation, what they're kind of thinking about and they're envisioning and how they're adapting some of these different philosophies and theories that might be useful to help 
African-Americans overcome their own particular issues at home in the United States? What are some models we can use to tackle the issues we're facing at the local, um, the state, or even the federal level as well? And so it became this idea of if Japan can do it, so can we. And this was something that was very entrenched that goes, uh, as, as Gerald Horn talks about, in Facing the Rising Sun. And a few other scholars as well, but they talk about the engagement and the actual outreach that was both intentional on both sides, um, both Japan and the U.S., to try to really engage with uh, Japan and African-American organizations in the U.S., um, really trying to engage in some kind of a transnational collaboration. Because you think about it, African-Americans, um, you know, in the thing about the United States in the early 20th century, they're not the majority population, but they're making these organizations that are very grassroots, that are very motivated, very organized about how do we bring about change, and they're reaching out to Japan, and Japan's reaching back as well. And so Gerald Horn talks about that very well in his book, these kind of transnational collaborations where Japan was very much seen um, as important in those spaces in the early 20th century. But as Japan changes and becomes this very uh, imperialistic power, uh, it becomes hard for different African-American uh, organizations to kind of pull away from that because it's, it's very much like, you know, we thought this was the issue. We thought this was a, uh, we thought this was uh, a solution. And now here again, we have to kind of rethink this as well. And then I think you mentioned about communism. <laughs> and so I think, um, and it goes to the other 20th century organizations. Um, the communist part of the United States of America was very much, uh, the CPUSA was very much, um, involved in a variety of African American organizations that were trying to organize for a variety of reasons. So, for instance, for unions to get better rights for their workers, uh, to unionize. And so one of the things that they do a great job of, um, at different, uh, scales in different places in the African community is they teach them how to, um, they give them skills, they provide skill sets different ways, how to do grassroots organizing, how to, you know, do certain things as well. And they showed up in times when other organizations were scared to show up. Uh, one example that we kind of talk about a lot is the Scottsboro Boys case, Alabama, where uh, nine young black uh, men put on trial for uh, they were falsely accused of raping two white women in a train car. And when they were looking for different people to support them, bring support, the CPUSA stepped up and really did step in a way that people were not expecting an organization like that to do. And so they had proven themselves in many ways to be, uh, whether you're communist or not, they did not necessarily have to be communist, but they were showing support and giving um, resources and support to the movements that were happening. And so in many cases, I think uh, Robin Kelly in his book, Hammer and Hole, talks about how the Communist Party and kind of the organizing that they did in places like Alabama and the uh, rural working class, um, how they were very useful in those spaces. And so we don't think about it as this kind of, there's a black monolith, but we break it down and see how the CPUSA really did uh, have influence in different places in the black community, um, whether it was urban or rural, whether it was uh, working class or um, middle class or whatever the place may be, they were very much engaged in trying to think about the needs and how they can be successful in terms of bringing support. And so many people who were involved might not have been communists, but they were looking for some kind of resources because they were not getting them elsewhere. So W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, his story and his him and his wife and their interaction with China um, in during the Mao period is truly amazing. And I learned a lot about this from your work in particular. Uh, but before we even dive into that, uh, could you first give like a primer on who he is? I'm going to just uh, assume that some listeners don't actually know who he is first. Uh, before we kind of continue. Um, so Dr. Uh, w. Du Bois, um, 
was um, a prominent scholar, uh, very much in thinking about African-American scholarship. He was a a sociologist by training that I kind of researched on thinking about black life in in the United States. Um, Born, um, uh, he's very much a scholarship turn of the 20th century. He's known best for his book, The Souls of Black Folks, which, by the way, I first got my first copy when I was in China. I was there studying abroad. An undergrad, and I was homesick, and I took my brother. I was kitchen. I was like, "I miss black people," and he was like, "What?" <laughs> so I went to the bookstore on the souls of black folks, and I still had that copy to this day. The copy I bought at a bookstore in Wanfujing in Beijing in like two thousand and five. <laughs> um, but he's very much known for his uh, the, the phrase. Um, the the turn of the the lines the problem of the twentieth century as well as his theory of double consciousness and the black and the the, the veil and thinking about ideas about race uh, in the twentieth century he wrote it on kind of the, the cusp right the turn of twentieth century and so he's known for that particular work but throughout his lifetime he did a lot of other things including you know founding the NAACP the National Association of Asian Colored People as well as his work. Um, at the AU Center, the Atlanta University Center, was not only the Atlanta University Center. There's some scholarship down there. There's a lot of work down there in terms of research and thinking about, uh, you know, black life and what that means in terms of scholarship and how do we think about it, using the kind of material and the data to assess and understand it, as well as kind of his global uh, understandings as well. And so towards his latter part of his life, he was very much about thinking about the African diaspora. He was trying to write a whole encyclopedia series about, you know, uh, African-Americans. And there's a lot in African diaspora, excuse me. And so there's a lot that he was trying to accomplish in his life. He's the most prolific writer. You look up a topic, he has something that he wrote about it, even in his uh, his, his latter years. And so there's a lot of really great work about him and who he was. But I think uh, one of the really great ones I read recently was the one by uh, Gerald Horn and um and uh, Shelly uh, Budden, uh, who wrote about uh, his writing, they kind of did a kind of a collective work about Du Bois in some really interesting and kind of engaging ways to talk about him as well. Um, so there's a lot of books, but I would say read his first. Uh, and there's always some good ones. And then always that was a new and more recent book that came out that's really, really good about Du Bois. And so um, his 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 global presence, um, his kind of uh, model of kind of always working, always kind of learning. Um, and I'm kind of always trying to understand the world around him um, is really important. Uh, as I mentioned, he got his start as undergraduate uh, at Fisk University. Um, he also uh, was the first African-American to get a, a doctorate from Harvard University. And so he has a lot of accomplishments on right in terms of his academic career. But he was very much about thinking about the issues that affect and impact African-Americans and then domestically both and also globally in some ways. And so uh, his going to China was huge um, and it was huge in different ways. And so thinking about him being recruited to go to China, if you will. <laughs> okay, so now why did uh, Du Bois go to China? Uh, I believe he went there for the first time in the 1930s. And that was actually even before uh, the uh, Mao period, it was during the naturalist period uh, in China. And then he stayed there for a long time. His wife, I believe, stayed there after he died. And I guess I'm wondering, what was that story? Actually, yeah, absolutely. So he went in 1936. Um, he was on, I believe, um, fellowship at the time uh, overseas in, in, in Europe, and he went to China. And as you mentioned, this was pre-1949 Communist China. And he went because, again, at this point, many African-Americans were still um, struggling with this kind of tenuous point. Should we continue to see Japan as this model or what's our next kind of place to look to for um, solutions? And so they were still very much beholden to Japan. And he went and he bought into a lot of the ideas that was coming out of Japan. You know, you know, Asia for Asia, the Asia co-prosperity sphere. We're doing this for the betterment of our Asian um, fellow nations. And so he kind of bought into that because 
because he was like, well, what I saw, it was this and this and that. It was blah, blah, blah. And what he didn't take into account was that one, you know, China up in this point, up until 1911, 1912, had an imperial system. So they were in the middle of a shift in terms of governance. So there's a huge change to go from thousands of years from one system to now trying to figure out what's your next system that you're going to engage in. And then, two, you're also in the midst of a political uh, a battle to how to unite all this country. There's a huge space that is China that became China under the Qing dynasty. How do you keep this space united? What is the governance? How do we maintain governance when you have different factions all fighting for power over this one particular place? So all that context was not really there. And so what he saw... Um, really kind of helped him kind of re-support his ideas for what he saw as Japan being this kind of Chinese Japan. And I think he, in some ways, when he uh, goes back in, in the 60s, uh, 50, late 50s and 60s, he does say, and I quote, you know, I'm sorry for what I thought. I did not really think about uh, what was going on. And I was just looking to, in some ways, I just was kind of fulfilling my own ideas. And he does mention that when he goes back to China in the 50s and 60s, where, you know, um, this was a lot going on. And I think I was kind of misreading the situation, if you will. Um, and so he has to come to the terms of, you know, at that point, China was really in a process of, uh, trying to figure its own things out it was in the midst of a lot of identity parallel. You know, we go from an imperial system to a nation state. We're going from one government to another. What is that government going to look like? Who's that government? Who's going to be our allies? There were just a lot of different things happening at one particular space at one time. And it was all not happening in a um, Sikh manner. It was a lot of kind of infactional in uh, domestic kind of turmoil. And that was also in some ways... Um, not helped by the fact that you have Japan really trying to come in and really have a lot of invasion. So you have this external threat as well as the domestic turmoil that's just really into a lot of different problems. And so um, he does mention that. He does mention in his later kind of writings and speeches, like, I was wrong because I could not have foreseen the China that it is today. This kind of quote unquote new China under Mao and the Communist Party. But he was very much one of those people who was like, yeah, I, I kind of uh, uh, eat my words. And while um, Du Bois is not perfect, you know, everyone is flawed. I do appreciate the fact that he was willing to um, not double down, but just to say, you know, I was I was misled. I was I was wrong. And here's why I was wrong. And I do kind of some ways see that these ideas I had before. So he was willing to, in the case of China, especially see where his thinking and his ideas about China had changed and evolved based on his experiences with China. I think that's one way he kind of gets this interesting um, space where he's really part of that conversation. Yeah. There is a photo I, I found in one of your papers, which I to me is still one of the most striking photos I, I've seen. Uh, it's a photo of Du Bois and Mao just taking a stroll, having a chat uh, in, in China. And I'm just so uh, curious, how is this photo not more well known? Um, it's very striking. And then on top of that, uh, you... Speak a, you speak a, a bit in that paper also and elsewhere about how Du Bois helped to shape the idea of black representation in, in China in this early period. So could you kind of tell us about that uh, as well? So I think um, those are some really good questions. So you have like three questions packed into one. So I'll try to break them apart. So the first is about, you know, why that picture is not more kind of well known. And I think one of the things when I began my research, um, I came to this research um, not through my because um, I did my degree in East Asian languages and cultures, but I came through it through a class with um uh, Professor Wilson, a scholar um, who is a, a historian, and he's, he's a historian, but also in um, 
she was also working in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity. And I took a class with her on kind of the Black uh, internationalism and thinking through kind of these questions. And it was through, uh, in her class, I came across this picture and I was like, whoa, the boys, wait, what happened? And so it was just kind of in those moments, like, I did not know this. And I think one of the things is that in many cases, whether intentional or unintentional, a lot of times the different disciplines are so separated where there are certain narratives that fall through the cracks. Uh, we look at kind of the Cold War history narrative, the kind of traditional one. It's been changing over the last 10 to 15 years to be more inclusive. But, you know, the original we taught when we grew up in school is that you have the U.S., you have Soviet Union, and then everyone else. And it's like, but that's not true. I will say the narrative is the U.S. and China had no connection between 49 and 72. Nixon goes and saves the day. Yay, United States and China come back again. And so that's kind of the new narrative of the U.S.-China relationship. It starts with Nixon. Well, that's not the case. And so what happens when you uncover, and not necessarily uncover, when you kind of bring back these narratives and kind of put them in a forefront in their scholarship, it brings back to light how some of these historical narratives have been taught that are very easy to remember. They give us some nice, easy bookends and places to think about the historiography. We realize that they are in some ways missing a lot of voices. And so these kind of stories about Du Bois being in China, meeting with Mao, other things like that, along with a cadre of other African-Americans really kind of illuminates how there's a lot to be uh, desired in the historical narrative and how do we in some ways bring those uh, narratives to the forefront to challenge the ways we've been taught and how we think about the historical narrative. So a lot of times those images... I had to kind of put those together in my own work. I was coming from a, a, a Chinese studies, a Chinese historical background, and I was looking at this from another course, and I was like, where, how do I put these two together? And so, again, in some cases, it was a matter of just putting it together where um, that's not how it's taught. You don't hear these narratives in Chinese history and talking about, you know, the Mao's era. You don't see this if you take a Chinese history course. If you take an African-American history course, it doesn't come up in the Cold War era either. And so it's like, why is this not coming up in either one of those spaces? And so um, that's just kind of how some Sometimes it happens and kind of challenging the idea of the curriculum and what we've seen is quote unquote standard narrative. And how do we use that moment to really challenge that standard narrative to say, no, there's some things missing here. What do we need to do to really think about how this particular image or this particular uh, understanding relationship challenges what we thought we knew? You know, you can never stop challenging what you thought you knew. So tell us all the time, you know, ask questions of everything because you don't learn and you ask questions. It can be the simplest question, but if it helps you ask the question. Um, but going back to the point, because you asked me three questions in one, so trying to get to the other two. <laughs> um, and thinking through um, the idea of um, kind of Du Bois and, and Mao, and I think your next question was, remind me if I'm wrong, um, was about how does this particular uh, image, uh, what was Mao, what was uh, Du Bois's uh, representations of Blackness in China, and how and does it still hold resonance today, correct? Yeah. So I think and what I've done in my research is it's very hard to kind of really kind of quantify um, certain things. And so I look at the idea of blackness in terms of performativity and I look at this for different ways. Um, one in terms of what we call quote unquote, the performer, um, which is the person and how there's some ways expressing their identity and the different ways they do so. But two, also, quote unquote, the audience, how it's being received, are they understanding that and kind of think about the context as well and this kind of space. And so instead of a theater, what is the kind of context? context in which they're engaging in this conversation. And so when Du Bois and his wife, Shirley Grand Du Bois, go to China, 
they're in a space where there is very limited understanding of African-Americans. We have African-American performers who went to, uh, who were in Shanghai in the 20s and 30s during the high uh, of the kind of Shanghai uh, kind of era. And so we have people who are in that space, but when they're going, it's more of a different kind of political space. They're in this kind of new official governmental space. They've been invited to China. It's a different level of engagement than kind of uh, the, the performance we had before. I, I, and, I remember that some black American jazz musicians performed at Chiang Kai-shek's I think I, I heard that from um, David Moser in, a, in a, a talk he gave about jazz in Shanghai. Jazz was huge in China. It was huge. They call it uh, the Chitlin Circuit of the Southeast. It was part of. So, so, and for those who don't know, the Chitlin Circuit was uh, a name given to the uh, for most American performers. You know the spaces they can actually perform in. Um, so thinking about you know segregation and, and certain places where they could only perform in certain places. And so this was also considered kind of the, in Southeast Asia. It was a huge space. It was East and Southeast Asia where you had jazz performers circulating, and they were even recruited. Uh, from the U.S. to go to China. And they really, a lot of them actually did go. So Buck Clayton and his band, uh, Harlem Gentlemen, and a few other bands, they went and they uh, were there for a while until... You know, Japan invaded uh, the Rape of Nanjing in 1937, and they started writing on the wall and they actually left. Uh, but Du Bois, in terms of changes or representation of blackness, uh, I think the way he, in some ways he discusses and talks about race, because before this, there was a limit to understanding. You had books like Uncle Tom's Cabin, that kind of translation, but that was written not by an African-American, it was by someone else writing about the African-American experience. And slavery and then translated by a Chinese uh, translator. So there's a lot of ways in which that kind of narrative gets watered down. And in many cases, the idea of blackness and especially for Americans was through the idea of, of slavery. And so he comes in some ways, kind of challenges that and brings a different dimension and conversation to it, to where he's invited by Mao. So he has a different level of um, of weight his political, his, his invitation. So he's seen it in some ways upheld in this kind of pedestal in some ways because of the idea where he's invited by Mao. And on top of that, he, in some ways, in those conversations and engagements, you see him and Shirley really in some ways just being themselves. Um, UMass Amherst has a great archive, one of which is a video um, from their trip, I think in 19, uh, 1959. I think it's a video. I just wonder if their trips have a video of it. And where they talk about, you can kind of see them as they're navigating different spaces and what happens in those different interactions including them singing Negro spirituals at a dinner or banquet reception. And again, that choice to sing that song, those kind of songs, you know, how that kind of really ties into it. So when I say this idea of representation of blackness, uh, how in some ways he is the face of many cases, not just blackness, but also in terms of the face of Americanness. There are no really American diplomats going this time period. They're encouraging and inviting African-Americans to go. He goes and he's actually able to stand on the kind of a national day, that kind of whole nice little podium. And he's up there, him, and his wife. And so the first American on that podium for National Day in China is African-American. And so, again, that sounds simple, but that level of kind of performativity, what he does in that space, does a lot. His speech about China, Africa, that he gives at Beida, Beijing University, is another example where it's just a lot of ways in which he's there, the way he's navigating the space. And he knows in some ways the uh, the identities or the kind of perceptions he's navigating through. And he's able to in some ways kind of challenge those and kind of really bring, uh, to be honest, a kind of a, a humanity to it as well. We'll go from this kind of metonym where black bodies are used as a stand-in for Chinese bodies, where slavery is equated to the coolie labor, and they're just using the narrative of Uncle Tom's Cabin to be a replacement, where it's like, well, how you understand coolie labor, read this book. 
but now he's really bringing a humanity and a kind of depth to it, to the black experience in a way that I don't think, uh, uh, you know, that they had had before in a really kind of concerted way on a national level in some ways. So that's why his voice, uh, his, uh, his kind of his trip to China was so important. Um, do I think it has resonance today? I do. Um, I think we're still dealing with some of these issues that uh, Du Bois dealt with when he went to China uh, those many decades ago. The idea of um, thinking about the diversity of blackness, the, the plurality of black voices. So while he was one voice, he was not trying to speak as all voices. He never said me as the representative of all black people give you this answer. He just said, this is me and my wife. And so we're still navigating through some of those kind of narratives as well. We're kind of thinking about in China, particularly, you know, the nation where it talks about we have a, a we have uh, with plurality. We have 56 ethnicities, but it's still one overwhelming majority, the Han. So the idea of plurality is still not very, you know, clear there. Or where the idea of like people who are from the places, they can be plurality of the places. It's like they're still kind of dealing with the idea of like different identities, where especially comes to the foreign black other. And so I think we're still dealing with some of those questions that Du Bois was grappling with back in the 50s and 60s. That I think we're still dealing with today in terms of living, navigating China in the black space as a black person, the black bodies in those spaces. What does that mean, and how can we think about those questions as well? So the Black Panthers also has some interesting relations to China as well in the Mao period. I, I read that. Um, China offered asylum to some of the leaders of the Black Panthers so they don't have to face persecution in the U.S. because of their uh, anti-racist uh, rallies and activism. So how did that come about? Well, what was the Panthers' interest in communist China? So the Black Panthers had an interesting relationship with China both uh, in the U.S. and in China. Um, so one thing they were doing is that they were um, they were kind of, you know, really putting together these kind of different global ideologies to kind of really kind of strengthen and kind of structure their own ideology. You know, so they use Maoism as one. And so they were using, uh, they were buying Mao's of red books, buying them and selling them. One, to make a profit, but two, also to be a means of education. And if you know anything about Mao's uh, Little Red Book, it's a very kind of accessible text. There's like a lot of different quotes and things that kind of you can kind of piecemeal together and kind of put some ideology together. But they were very much about, you know, doing that on the U.S. side. They also did actually um did in a kind of global tour actually make their way to both the dimension uh they made they made their way to China and so there is evidence that they did go to China. There's a few scholars that have written about this as well, and there's more scholarship coming out, including uh, recently I was informed by one of my colleagues um uh, at Colorado about some images that are out there now, which shows the Black Panthers this cohort of like eight or ten black people in the seventies on the Great Wall of China and Afros. And bell bottoms posing for a picture. You got these Chinese people walking around like, wait, what is going on? I mean, it's the most amazing picture in black and white. And you got pictures in the, you know, it's just an amazing picture. And it's one of those moments where they actually did go, uh, I think for sure, um, in 72, maybe even 73, but it was right around the time of Nixon's, um, kind of historic visit. And unfortunately, they're, um, the visit was kind of swallowed up by the mainstream because Nixon's visit kind of took over that kind of moment to where it was kind of seen as, you know, we're moving more to quote unquote mainstream relations between U.S. and China and China shifting away from some of these kind of quote unquote radical groups moving away from the, the, the periphery to the center. And but they did go and it was very much about what the Panthers were thinking about the ways in which um, the ideas of Maoism, Maoist China, think about the culture evolution, how they think about the use of art, how that can be a means. Look at some of the propaganda posters that 
the panelists put out, it was very much about something that was very much falling to the lines of Mal uh, Yenon's speech, where it's like, you know, not art just for art's sake, but how do we use art to bring in the masses? You know, wherever they are, they can read an image. So the, the idea of, a, say, a police officer who is a, a pig in a police costume, a police officer's outfit, that's a very accessible image. Or I think about images of you have a black woman with a gun, you know, that's a very accessible image. As you can read and kind of understand whether you know Che Guevara or Mao Zedong at all, you can kind of read that image and get something from it. You can read the images in that way, the iconography there. So they were very much involved in thinking about the ways in which not just um, what Mao was saying, but also kind of adapting those ideas. And yes, the Panthers did make their, we were learning now, because that was a question a lot of, for a long time. Did they make it? Did it go? And it is some images coming out that kind of support the idea that yes, they actually did make um, their way to China, and it was a visit. Um, but unfortunately, their visit was also in part of, uh, in that moment of shifting in terms of U.S.-China relationships, where that moment was uh, unfortunately uh, not as uh, groundbreaking as it should have been, as we wanted it to be, because it could have really done a big shift. Um, but yeah, the Panthers were uh, involved. And think the one thing about Mao uh, Zedong in that moment was that he was very much about inviting African Americans to China. It was a very intentional reason for why. But I think it was in cases, a lot of cases, it was um, in his invitations. It was very much about for a certain particular purpose. He wanted to undermine American imperialism, as we see he writes over and over and over in his speeches. I think we also need to make sure that we also think about the agency of the people who go. They're not going just because Mao asked them to. They're going because they're also hoping to get something from this visit as well. And so while both sides had different agendas, they both had their own agendas. They both had their own intentions for going. And those visits were very heavy in terms of who, in some ways, wanted to get out of it and what they're hoping to get from those visits and what was the ultimate outcome of those particular uh, relationships. Now, the hot topic of recent is, of course, are Chinese people racist? Uh, this has been spurred by the fairly infamous incidents. This is, of course, the Spring Gala, where... A performer, a Chinese performer lady, was in full blackface with a very uh, stuffed behind to, you know, amplify that kind of features. And the storyline was, you know, pretty insulting to black people in Africa. And there's also the incident with the half black, half Chinese lady in a talent show where she was cyberbullied because of her appearance. And then the infamous washing machine. Oh, not the washing machine. Uh, for those of you who don't know this one, so in this ad, a black lady was flirting with a black guy. Sorry, was flirting with a Chinese lady, and it was going fine, kinda. And then she took him and stuffed him into a washing machine, and then out pops a young, very fair-skinned Chinese guy. So you can imagine how that how that looks. By the same time, in this same China where these are going on. You have the mainstreaming of different black culture. You have also the popularity of Zhongguo Xin Shuo Chang, of China. It's a very popular show uh, about uh, rapping and hip hop. You have uh, reggae being very popular in Yunnan. It's a, a band called Kawa. It's like a, actually ethnic minority Wu people have a reggae band. It's pretty popular in, in Yunnan. You have dance hall fets in Shanghai. You have soccer fets in Beijing. So it's a pretty mixed bag. So I I wonder if the reaction to these kind of uh, incidents is too intense, given that perhaps people expect China to be much more cosmopolitan than it can be, given it's not been that, uh, it hasn't had that much interaction with uh, different racial groups 
I still does not to this day. Yeah, so that's a good question. I think it's the level of different scales. And I think this is the question of, like you said, this is one thing happening at the same time you have this other kind of, kind of other kind of vibe or kind of culture happening as well. We have the kind of the mainstream and this is kind of other culture. I think it's a question of, of scales and, and, the, and the scales can be in terms of regions, in terms of the local, regional, you know, local, provincial, and then national. It can be in terms of generations, young generation versus older generation. It can also be in terms of just a lot of different demographics. And so I think one of the things that we're seeing happening is that there is becoming a conversation amongst these different spaces. Um, I had a great chance to work with two grad students in China and they worked on a project talking about what it means to be black in China for a Chinese audience. And that was something I never thought I would see because there are some ways that we know our outreach audience is not the African community or the African Americans or the black people in China. We're talking about their experience and want to include them in this conversation to in some ways talk to our our other people in China, the people we know in Beijing, because um, it's very much a Beijing kind of focused project, even like they're our ancestors, our parents, our different communities about this because in some ways they're holding on certain ideas where we in some ways have experienced it differently and wanting them to see this question in different ways. I think what's happening now is that there's become a turn inward. Um, that has been having a conversation because for a long time, as I mentioned in a piece I wrote a long time ago, I can't, <laughs> a long while ago, that I mentioned that, you know, the same thing had these kind of commercials and advertisements happening. You also have the idea where you have these kind of a, a lot of money and resources allocated to research institutions where they're creating China African institutions at multiple universities across China, or they're having a lot of money and research devoted to researching them, but it's more like the economic and political. But a lot of the information that's coming out is not being filtered down. And it's almost like these two different spaces. And I think those two different spaces exist. But I think in this kind of current moment, we see those spaces, the kind of, they're being in some ways that middle space, the kind of gray area is being navigated navigated by, in many cases, a lot of young people. They're really trying to change these conversations. Some who have either studied abroad and they kind of know different narratives and understandings, or some who just are really kind of exposed and engaged in communities that are around them. They go to the different events that have been held at places like Black Liberty, where they're having, um, you know, and they have an annual kind of, you know, kind of an annual, annual Africa Day. And they kind of have an annual kind of these moments to kind of come see our culture and engage with us. So I think that young people are in some ways really doing a lot that can really kind of change those perceptions is it going to be enough right now? There's a lot to be done. So I don't think we're expecting a lot from China. I think China has a lot to be caught up on because what's happening is that as China becoming a global power, when they want to be a not, they're going to have to catch up to what's happening, have to be kind of aware of the world around them. And I think they're going to have to kind of pop that bubble that has kind of enshrined them for a while. So while you had this economic boom, there's a reason why you need to engage in the world. I think the world is coming to China and China's going to the world and the people in China are going to have to in some ways have conversations about what that means. I think it's going to be a long time coming for we kind of really see some engaged conversations. Let's be real. The U.S. still has not done that well. So let's, we, you know, but I think there can be a space where they can kind of in some ways try to open up those conversations to engage, to kind of really address these kind of questions or concerns about where does this anti-blackness come from? How do you engage in where are these perceptions from? How do we kind of think through these? Because, you know, having the idea and the levels of anti-blackness we have seen in China combined with the levels of engagement to different African nations and peoples or different people to the diaspora, uh, especially, 
you can, those two are not going to work well for a long-term relationship. What are you going to do to really bridge those gaps? And I think those conversations are going to be hard. Um, I think they're in some ways being navigated now in this kind of middle space by a lot of the young people. But again, that should not be their that chair. That, that should not be um, their burden. But they're the ones who lead the charge because they, in some ways, have a different perspective than the other people who have been before them have had. And they're trying to really kind of open those conversations because that's the world they want to see. And I have had experience with some people where I, I was very happy. It's not to everyone. I'm not making sure it's not a monolith, but just saying that um, the ones I've had engagement with, they're very much really concerned about what are we saying? How do we say it? How do we put this out there for both? You know, how do we make sure that the communities represent are represented fairly, represented it well, but also how do we package for the intended audience to make sure that they understand what we're trying to say. And they're kind of going beyond this kind of globalization where we're going to push this on you, but no, they just want you to kind of see people as people and kind of understand that perspective and kind of reaching into that humanity or that people to people aspect. So I think there, there's a lot to be done. So we're not saying a lot from China. It's just China has the, uh, they need to do some, some work and China's the only place. So I'm not picking on China by no means, but I'm just saying they have a lot of work to do. And so do other nations as well, the U S included. My final question is, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Could be reading, could be watching, could be more listening as well. I've had a chance to work with um, William Bridges and Marlon Ster- and Marvin Sterling, who both do work about uh, Japan, and they're both uh, black scholars in that particular space, and they do some really great work. And I think um, William is working on something about you know uh, the Black Pacific in, in, in Asia, and so I think like there's the work that they're doing. Um, what they're talking about. You know, different uh, historical perspectives. Uh, I'm a historian. Uh, Marvin is an anthropologist, and I think William is in literature. And so it's like we do different things in the black space, um, but also in the Asian space as well. So I know that there are scholarships today, right? It's just great. Uh, and they're amazing people. Um, in terms of um, specific works, William is back because I got like three, four projects in the works. I'm trying to think about who do I read these days in terms of this space. Um, I was just turned on to the book called um, The Black Pacific Narrative. Um, it came out, I think, in what, 2014, 2015. Um, and I was turned on to this by a grad student who I had a chance to reach out to. And it's a really great book because about the Black Pacific Narrative in an interesting way. Um, that kind of in some ways gives a nice um, kind of juxtaposition to the Black Atlantic, but it's very much from a um, Asian study perspective but I think it's a really really great book um I will say like I said I see mentioned homegrown so my sorry to the, the producers who I forgot the name that's a great podcast because one of the few that really talks about being black in China and it gives some really interesting ways with the goal they said to you know inform entertain and just you know just let people know that we're here but also kind of you know talk about the experiences of people and they have a diverse perspective of different people um it's not necessarily about race in China, but it's about race because my research is race ethnic studies. So I do look at everything from a race perspective. So it is what it is. I'm sorry. Um, I also love Code Switch. That's my go-to. I love me some Code Switch. <laughs> but also thinking about different voices in the China space, New Voices podcast, as well as anything from Seneca podcast. They have some really great podcasts as well that give you a sense of the kind of China experience from a variety of different perspectives. Um, so those are some recommendations I will give off the cuff. Since Rasheed put me on the spot, and I'm like, I'm not good with names. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so, <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for having this conversation. It was really, really fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been a great joy to my day. I needed this laugh. This is good. Thank you. You are purple, yellow, pink, blue, orange, or green. I don't wanna be a friend. Don't just be a friend. When you get out, when you see me, say, let the light shine. What do I do? I don't want.